Welcome to Kevin Connor's podcast. This series is on the parables of Jesus. A terrific companion to this teaching is Kevin's best-selling book, Mystery Parables of the Kingdom, available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook formats from Amazon in your area, or as an immediate PDF download from the shop at kevinconnor.org. All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, and as we're going to see, this, uh, this short parable is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not found in uh, Mark or Luke. Uh, or in John, uh, so it's only found in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. All right, verse 44 says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure, hid in a field, the which when a man hath found he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now you'll notice as we're going to pick up through tonight, that in this case the treasure was found and hidden, but in the, uh, in the parable of the kingdom of heaven like unto leaven, uh, where the woman took and hid the leaven, she was hiding something that she shouldn't. But here we find there's another hiding, but this is in a positive sense. Now, as we've been doing uh, each week, we're going to put on the overhead just the parts of the parable that we need to look at together and uh, pick out the major uh, symbols that are uh, in it. So the parable of the hid treasure we're looking at and just breaking up the... Just because I'm a fanatic for believing the word is inspired... So we've broken it up here. So the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field the which when a man found he hideth and for joy thereof goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So I've underlined in red the major parts of the parable that we need to be looking at tonight. We want to look at the treasure. We want to look at why he hid the treasure uh, in the field and who the man is. Uh, we already know, I'm sure, but who the man is. And when he found, why did he hide it again? And what was the joy? And this selling all, and why did he buy the field? Okay, we know he bought the field to, uh, to, to get the treasure. As the custom was, if anybody found a treasure in a field, they could not claim the treasure unless they bought the field. All right, so they're the parts of the parable we need to uh, look at tonight. All right, so uh, just on the first part here, the kingdom of heaven is like unto... And just repeating the words that we've been looking at uh, in each week, the kingdom of heaven resembles or represents, that's the main thought there, it represents or it resembles, it corresponds to uh, these uh, elements of the parable, these ingredients of the parable. Now, the major lesson that we want to get from the parable tonight, as we saw last week, uh, or the last two weeks, we looked at the external development of the kingdom in the, in the seed, the mustard seed that became a great tree and the birds lodged in the branches. And last week we looked at the internal corruption of the kingdom by the leaven being hid in the meal. But this parable, the next uh, week, the parable of the uh, merchant man seeking goodly pearls, the major truth in both these parables, these twin parables, remember the illustration we used of the lampstand? The major truth is the priceless value and cost of the kingdom. So the priceless value and the cost of the kingdom. And you'll notice in this parable, as well as the one next week, there's nothing of evil in these two parables. Now, I just have to throw some things in here, uh, at least in seed form, without developing them too much. But uh, when, we, when we get the time, we're going to correspond the seven parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, were the seven churches in the book of Revelation. 
And all we can say for the present is this, that the middle, uh, middle parable had a woman hiding leaven in it, and the middle church has a woman who's guilty of uh, false doctrine, corruption, uh, corrupting doctrine in the church. And then again, just on this point here, of the seven churches, five of them are called to repent. Two of them have nothing to repent of. And of the seven kingdom of parables here, seven kingdom of heaven parables here, five of them have evil in them, two of them don't. So five churches, two, nothing of evil in. Five parables have mixture in, two parables, nothing of evil. So there's a, just a remarkable correspondence between the seven kingdom of heaven mystery parables and the seven uh, uh, mystery churches in the book of Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. All right, so uh, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. Now, another thing I need to say here is this, that this is another uninterpreted parable. Jesus did not interpret the parable for them here. And as we've been noticing each week, he interpreted parable one and interpreted, interpreted parable two, but he did not interpret the parable, uh, any of the rest of the parables virtually, except uh, number seven he gave uh, some uh, uh, a pa a partial interpretation. So here we have another parable that's uh, uninterpreted. And as, as we've said before, we find that the human mind again has misinterpreted this parable, and I'll mention that in a moment here. Uh, but why did the disciples not ask Jesus for the interpretation of this parable? I believe that what I'm going to share tonight is the reason that because their minds are basically saturated with the Old Testament scriptures and because they are Jews, they are Hebrews, they know the Old Testament scriptures and some of the things that are just here in seed form, their minds are just so familiar with the uh, cultural and social uh, national situation there that they don't have to ask Jesus for interpretation on this and I believe as we uh, continue tonight we'll see the uh, truth of that. All right now I'll just read off my note here. This is the most beautiful parable. There is no thought of evil in the parable as uh, in parable 6. Both have similar characteristics. In both parable 5 and 6, there's a man, there's a price paid, and something of value is purchased. Now, let me say this, and I repeat it again for next week. The treasure is not Christ. The pearl is not Christ. I know back in my uh, oldie days, we used to sing, I found the pearl of great price. How many remember that? Only a few Salvationists would remember that. I found the pearl of greatest price, my heart doth sing for joy. Well, Christ is not for sale. The man sold all he had to buy the pearl. Well, we don't sell all we have to buy Christ. He's not up for sale. We're going to see. And then the same thing has been said about the treasure, that the treasure is Christ, and we have to sell all we have to get Christ. No, Christ is not for sale. He says in uh, Isaiah chapter 50 somewhere, he says, uh, you know, uh, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come and buy uh, meat and milk and drink without money and without price. The gospel is priceless. He paid the price. It's going to cost us, uh, us all, but we do not buy him. Christ is not for sale. So I uh, hope everybody can say amen to that. All right, so the treasure is not Christ. He is the treasure in earth and vessel in us, but he's not the treasure in the field here. 
All right, now I want you to look number one here, or number two we're looking at. So the kingdom of heaven is like unto, it resembles, represents, it corresponds to. Number two, we're going to look at the first symbol that's in this parable, and this is the thought of the treasure. I want you to go over to uh, Psalm 135, and I'd like to read several scriptures here, first of all. So we're looking at the treasure. What does the treasure represent? The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure. All right, Psalm 135. Sometimes people ask me, uh, you know, what would be a good commentary on the Bible? I say, the best commentary on the Bible is buy a Bible. All right, Psalm 135 and verse, uh, we'll read verses 1 through to 4. It's so verse 4 we're after. So we're looking particularly at the treasure that's hid in the field, okay? Kingdom of heaven is likened unto a treasure hid in the field, okay? Psalm 135, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord. Praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of, of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. How many have been enjoying just singing to the Lord and standing in his house and worshipping him tonight? It's pleasant. Now, here's the verse we're after. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Okay, now in the Old Testament, here Israel is referred to as his treasure. Peculiar treasure. Why don't you keep that in mind? Peculiar treasure. Now, let's go, don't, don't exercise your leg muscles and jump to conclusions yet. Okay, so Israel, his peculiar treasure. Now let's go back to Exodus chapter 19, Exodus 19. And in verse uh, 4 and 5 and 6, and we had cause to refer to this last week or the week before or the week before, uh, Moses going up into the mount to God and the Lord calling him to him out of the mountain. Uh, latter part of verse 3, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant... Here it is again. Then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So Israel as a nation taken out of Egypt to be unto the Lord a kingdom of priests, in verse 6. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here this nation taken from the midst of the nation is referred to as God's peculiar treasure unto him above all people, for all the earth is mine. So, kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. All right, so we have two scriptures in the Old Testament uh, where Israel is referred to as a peculiar treasure. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 2, while we're in the Old Testament. And now we have uh, two words. One word is changed, the other word is the same. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and uh, verse 2. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar what? 
Okay, so now the treasure becomes people. Okay, two scriptures I've given you, just two in the Old Testament, where Israel is God's peculiar treasure. And now in Exodus 19, again, we have the same thought, Israel is God's peculiar treasure, and it be unto him a kingdom of priests. And now here, instead of peculiar treasure, the treasure becomes people. So you are a holy people unto the Lord your God, and the Lord have chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are upon earth. So now the treasure becomes people. Now I want you to go over to um, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm encouraging you and making you look at the Scriptures because we're interpreting what Jesus did not interpret. So I want you to feel secure in how we're interpreting the Word here. All right, 2 Peter chapter 2. And for those of you taking down notes, you can put verses, uh, verses 4 through to 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through to 9. To whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore it's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also were appointed. That's verse 9 we're after. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar what? a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. Peter is writing to the church. He's writing to spirit-filled believers. And you know what Peter actually does here, and we can only take on the particular area we're looking at tonight, but in verse 9 particularly, he goes way back to Exodus chapter 19, and he takes the language of Exodus 19. If we had the whiteboard, we could put it up, but just imagine it was here. In Exodus 19, the major ingredients we have there is that they would be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. They would be a peculiar treasure. They would be a holy nation. So a kingdom of priests, peculiar treasure, holy nation. Four things are taken out of Exodus 19 that was applied to the nation of Israel back there in the Old Testament, and now it's given over to the church. So now here the church is a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now you say, okay, Kevin, are you taking something of Israel and giving it to the church? Yes, I am. And the reason I'm doing that is Matthew chapter 21, you can just put it down, Matthew 21 verse 43 Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation 
bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. And you'll notice the emphasis on the stone that we've just read in the passage. So the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And so in Jesus' ministry, Jesus comes to the nation of Israel, Jewish nation as it was then, and uh, they rejected the king and the kingdom. And so at the end of his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. What nation? Britain, America, Russia, Australia, China. How many know what nation the kingdom was given to? Hands up. How many are frightened of getting caught? Hands up. The, the, the church is the holy nation. See, the church is a nation within the nations. Out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation, we have the holy nation. There's no holy nation upon the face of the earth. Only the church. Take the church out, every nation's corrupted and corrupting. So the only holy nation upon the face of the earth, certainly not America, certainly not uh, England, certainly not Australia, certainly not Russia or China or anywhere. Find me a holy nation on the face of the earth that has the kingdom of God. The only nation that was given the kingdom of God is the church. And so people have said to me over the years, those who are, are, would be other interpreters of the word and disagree with me, uh, disagreeably, they say, well, the church is never called a nation. Well, here it is here. Peter's writing to the church, to the elect. In 1 Peter 1, verse 2, he says, that elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's writing to Christians. And he says, you are a chosen generation. How many are glad you're a chosen generation? You are a royal priesthood, a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are a peculiar people. Okay, so I've given you those scriptures from the Old Testament and Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, where Jesus said, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to a nation. I want to say that the treasure, the nation, the people is the New Testament church. Okay, in the Old Testament, Israel was God's treasure. Okay, no, no problems with that. In the Old Testament, before the cross, Israel was God's peculiar treasure. But as a nation, they rejected the cross. They rejected the Christ of the cross. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected the king. They rejected the kingdom. And Jesus said, except a man be born again, you can't enter the kingdom. And they didn't want to be born again. So now Jesus, said, at the end of his ministry, says the kingdom is taken from you and is given to a nation that will bring forth the fruits. That nation is the church, and I'm part of that. So the treasure, I'm saying in a nutshell here, in the light of those scriptures, both Old and New Testament, in the Old Testament, the treasure was Israel. In the, in the New Testament, the treasure is the church, the people of God. And if you've got your Bible, still open to 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 10. So a peculiar treasure, a peculiar people. So the treasure is the people. Treasure is the people of God. So in verse 10 he says, which in time past were not a people, but you're now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I appreciate the mercy of God, don't you? And I'm part of the people of God. Hallelujah. I'm part of God's peculiar treasure. And you know that the scriptures often abuse so well we're a peculiar people and think we're peculiar in the head. It doesn't mean that at all. 
So don't abuse the word. I'm not peculiar. Are you? Well, peculiar, when they abuse that word, I think you're peculiar up here. You've got a screw loose. You're one brick short of a load. And I want to know which wall you fell off. It means you purchase peculiar treasure, special, special, the people of God. So I hope you're convinced with me that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure, and that treasure is the church, the holy nation, the people of God. We are God's treasure. All right, now let's go to the next point quickly. Number three, it says the, uh, this treasure was hid in the field. Now remember on the parable of 11, the woman was hiding uh, the, the leaven in the meal. She was doing something forbidden in the feast, as we've seen. And as we said, uh, the, ch- the church does not hide the gospel. As we quoted last week from 2 Corinthians, if our gospel be hid, it is hid from them that are lost. But we don't hide the gospel, okay? But this treasure was hidden, okay? What do we mean by that? I want you to go over to um, uh, several scriptures here. Let's see where we'll pick out. I want you to go to um, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And we ask, okay, that if the treasure is the church, some people say it's Israel, well, okay, I say it's spiritual Israel. So if the treasure is the church, why, why was it hid? All right, listen to it. If, and, and, and we're particularly looking at the New Testament, Revelation of the Kingdom. Okay, Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll pick up in verse uh, 1. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm looking at the word hid or hidden, the treasure hidden in the field. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, would how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now you'll notice this, it's the mystery. We're looking at mystery parables of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom. Paul's talking about mystery here. Uh, made known unto me the mystery as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now listen to verse 5, which is the key. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, not a Gentile body or Jewish body, but of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So there was a mystery which was hidden, which in other ages was not made known uh, as it is now revealed unto his holy and prophets and, uh, apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And remember, this treasure was hid in the field and this man, whoever the man is, and we've already guessed that, this man discovered the treasure in the field. Okay? So the treasure was hid in the field. All right, so in other ages, the revelation of the church as the body of Christ composed of Jew and Gentile, it was not known in other ages. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Where we have uh, the same basic truth here. Colossians chapter 1 and pick up in verse... Uh, 26, just for time's sake, uh, even the mystery, and here it is, 
which hath been hid from ages and from generations. So there's a mystery that has been hidden. This treasure is hidden in the field. So this mystery has been hid from ages and generations, or as Paul said in Ephesians, it's hid from uh, uh, previous ages. But now it's revealed. The treasure's been discovered. In other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. Uh, even the mystery which had been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ among you, uh, the hope of glory. So this mystery was hidden. The church was, the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. See, none of the Old Testament prophets saw the church. It was a mystery hidden but it was revealed uh, to the New Testament apostles and prophets, particularly to the Apostle Paul. And then I'd like you to look at one other scripture on this, uh, which says the same truth, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And uh, verse 25 and 26. Romans 16, verse 25 and 26. Uh, now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, here it is again, which was kept secret, hidden, kept secret, since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known. Let me just read that way. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, made known that the church composed of Jew and Gentile would be the body of Christ, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And uh, just while I, I have my eye on it, put down Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 uh, back on, number, on, on the treasure there. I meant to give it to you before. Titus 2 verse 14 where it says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. So peculiar people, peculiar people, that's Titus 2.14 being put back on the treasure. Okay, so my, what I'm saying here is that the church is God's treasure. It was a mystery hid from ages and generations from Adam through to Jesus. When he said, upon this rock I will build my church, the church was a mystery. Not revealed to the Old Testament prophets, the mystery was given to the Apostle Paul that Jew and Gentile should be the one body of Christ, the church, the mystery body of Christ. All right, now, number four, on our overhead here, the treasure was hidden in the field. I don't think any of us have any problem about that. The field is what? Remember I said the word field is used seven times in this chapter, and consistency of interpretation uh, tells us what it is. The field is the world. If you want to put down... The verses there again, verse 24, verse 31, 38, and 44. Say them again, where the field is used seven times in this chapter. The treasure hid in the field, the mustard seed in the field, uh, the tares and wheat in the field, and so forth. So verse 24, verse 31, verse 38, and 44. The field is the world. So let's get pulling our jigsaw puzzle together. Kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure. So the treasure is the church, a peculiar treasure, peculiar people, hidden in the world. 
How many think that's true? You know what Jesus said? Uh, the world doesn't know you. It didn't know me. And if it doesn't know me, it's not going to know you. Does the world know the church? I'm talking about the true church, not the denominational and establishment, but the true church. The, church, the world hasn't got a clue who we are. They haven't got a clue who we are. They just think we're a bunch of religious nuts. Macadamia nuts. Didn't know who he was. All right, so the field is the world. I don't think I need to spend any time on that. Now, the which when a man found. All right, we've noticed all the way through that we have the man in parable one, the man in parable two, the man in parable three, and the, the, uh, the woman, it switches to a woman. They've got to give the woman a chance, don't we? The woman in parable four, but now we come back to the man again. And I believe the man is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you put down, without turning to, I'm just looking at time again. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. Implications of this. There is one mediator between God and man, and who it is, who is it? The man, Christ Jesus. Now, what's implied every time we look at the man in the parables? What's that? Yes, his humanity. Thank you, your theologian Malcolm there. Yes, his, his humanity. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, became man. So the very thought of, of the man here is the incarnation, the virgin birth. The Lord Jesus Christ is the God-man. So in the virgin birth, deity took upon itself humanity. So we have the man, Christ Jesus. Put down Zechariah chapter 6 without turning to Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12. The man, the man whose name is the branch. So we have the incarnation of virgin birth where Jesus Christ became the man. So now what I'm saying here is the church is the treasure, being hid in the field of the world, a mystery that God had in his heart right from eternity. But now there's a man who comes into the field and he finds this. The man came into the field by the virgin birth, Jesus Christ, the God-man. So he, he finds the church, and he's the one that says, upon this rock I will build my church. All right, so he hideth again. So, well, he hides it, okay? Uh, my thought there is that the church is hidden from the world. Let's, let me go over to um, yeah, 1 John chapter 3. I'd like you to look at this one. 1 John chapter 3. Yes, I was quoting it, but I want to give it to you. John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Verse 1 and 2, I think. Beautiful verse here. 1 John chapter 3, and I'm talking about the hiding. So there was a mystery hidden back there, but the man finds it, he hides it, and we are hidden from the world. John, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because we haven't got a clue. They are as blind as a bat without radar. <laughs> and beloved, now are we the sons of God and it doesn't appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we're going to be like him. For we'll see him as he is. 
and put down John chapter 17, just put the whole chapter down because Jesus says, Father, I've taken them out of the world. I'm sending them back into the world. The world doesn't know me. The world doesn't know them. But he said, you've given them to me. Thine they were, and you've given them to me, and I've kept them. They're yours. Treasure, treasure. Let's move quickly, as the time does. Go to number eight here, and look at this joy. I'd like you to look at two scriptures on the thought of joy. Uh, Go over to John's Gospel, chapter 3. And also in connection with it, Hebrews chapter 12. So, two scriptures I want to give you in connection with this. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 29. John 3, verse 29. And Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Okay, John chapter 3, verse 29. Looking at the word joy now. Okay, listen to how John the Baptist uses it. John chapter 3 and verse 29. John the Baptist is speaking, so he says... He that has the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bride? The church. Who's the treasure? Who's the peculiar people? Church. Okay. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Okay. Jesus is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, now I've mentioned this before, but for those who weren't here that day, why weren't you? Uh, But the friend of the bridegroom, who's the friend of the bridegroom? John the Baptist. And as I said this before, and don't throw it away, it could be right. It's not my fault if I am right, okay? John the Baptist will be the best man at the marriage of Christ and the church. You're looking at me funny. You're looking at me like a cow looking at a new gate, some of you. (laughs) Listen to the language. So you think, think, think. It doesn't hurt you to think. He, or does it? He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is fulfilled. Now I've used it in relation to a wedding, but you think when the bridegroom is standing there next to the bride and you say, wilt thou? They don't wilt. (laughs) And then you say to them, what token is to be given that you'll faithfully perform these vows? And they say, a ring. When they give me the ring, I always see that smile on the best man, the second best man, or the best man as he gives me the ring. And uh, when he hears the bridegroom say, I will, his joy is fulfilled. Well, you see, John the Baptist, and I, I'll have to back off on this, I get so many sidetracks, but like David said, people enjoy my tangents more than my teaching sometimes, they tell me. <laughs> Uh, But John the Baptist, he stands as the last of the Old Testament prophets, the close of the Old Testament prophets, and he introduces the bridegroom. And he says, he that has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride is on the inside of the bridegroom like Eve was inside of Adam. And when he heard the bridegroom's voice, he said, my joy is fulfilled. I'm just the best man. He's got the bride. How many think that's a great picture? So I said all that to say this, that was John's joy. Now what's the joy here? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 1, uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, laying us, no, wherefore seeing we also encompassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, 
Let us run with patience, fortitude, endurance, the race that is set before us, set before us, looking unto Jesus, listen to the language, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what joy? John's joy was what? To hear the voice of the bridegroom. What do you think is the joy of the bridegroom? To hear the voice of the bride. So for the joy that was set before him, this, this man found this treasure in the field and he hides it and for the joy. Now he hasn't got the treasure, he's discovered it, but he hasn't received the treasure yet because he's got to do something which is very, very important in a moment. So if John, the best man, rejoices to hear the bridegroom's voice, the bridegroom is going to rejoice to hear the bride's voice. You see, in a measure that goes on in a service when we worship the Lord, a heavenly bridegroom likes to hear the voice of the bride singing love songs to him. So we gather as members of the bride of Christ, do we? And, uh, and, and the bridegroom says to the bride, let me hear thy voice. So he wants to hear our voice in praise and worship and singing and loving him. And if you're silent, he doesn't hear your voice. How'd you like to be a married woman, married to a woman who never said, it, I love you? How'd you like to be married to a man who never said, I love you? I told you I loved you 90 years back. <laughs> Would you like that? No. What do you think Jesus, the bridegroom, wants? He wants daily love from us. So for the joy that was set before him, he now I want you to link this up with what we're going to do now. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. I want you to listen to that. All right, we'll link it up here. So he endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross, but there was a joy set before him. He endured the cross because the cross was the price to pay for the bride, the field, the treasure. Despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for his bride to come. Now, let's go down here, number nine. And I'll just say this briefly because I've got an important thing I want to finish up on. He goes and sells all he has. It cost him everything. How many know that it cost Jesus everything? The value and price of the treasure cost him everything. Now, here's the clincher of the whole thing in my mind. I hope it is for you. When you get down to number 10 here, he buys the field. I haven't got the chalkboard to put this on. But the Greek word here is agorazo or agorazo or something, A-G-O-R-A-Z-O. Z-O, and it literally means to acquire out of the marketplace and has the whole thought of redeeming. There's only one who redeems the treasure. That's him. It cost him his all, so he bought the field. Now, as I said, if a person found a treasure in the field, they had no right to uh, claim the treasure. So he wants to get the treasure, but he has to get the field. Now I want you to go back really quickly here. Let's turn back to the book of Ruth. There's just some beautiful illustrations. And I believe this is one of the major reasons why the disciples didn't ask for the interpretation of this because of certain customs. I'm going to give you, if I, if I can squeeze it in here, two. Let's turn back to the book of Ruth. One of those beautiful books in the Bible named after a woman. 
and we'll go to, oh, let's see, yes, Ruth chapter 4. Let me tell the story briefly. Naomi and Elimelech have gone down to Moab in time of famine, and there's been nothing but death, 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 death. Then in due time they hear that uh, the Lord has visited his people, giving them bread. So they go back there, Naomi, and a Gentile woman by the name of Ruth. Why don't you listen to that Gentile woman, a Gentile woman by the name of Ruth. And uh, when she gets back there, she accidentally, no, no, that's not the word, providentially, lands into the field of a kinsman redeemer. And so after some time there of harvest, oh, I mean, the picture is so fantastic. Where do you start? Where do you stop? After the bride-to-be, though she doesn't know who's going to be the bride, after a period of harvesting in the field in harvest time, in barley harvest and wheat harvest, Passover Pentecost, uh, the kinsman redeemer wants to buy her. But there's a closer kinsman redeemer that has to receive the right of honor first. So go to chapter 4 quickly, and we'll paraphrase chapter 4. Then went Boaz up, who was the kinsman redeemer, up to the gate, and sat him down there and said, Behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such one, hi, hi you, split. Uh, turn aside, sit down here, and he turned aside and sat down. Takes ten men of the elders of the city, and in verse 3, he said unto the kinsman, Naomi that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, it's a field, a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's, his inheritance. And I thought to advertise, he's saying, buy it before the inheritance and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you'll not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Now listen to verse 5, because this is the catch. I'm sorry I can't sort of milk this a bit. Then said Boaz, what day you buy the field of the hand of Naomi, you must buy it also of Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon inheritance. And the kinsman said, Ah, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to buy to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Let me say what the point is. He says, Oh, I'll buy the field. And so the kinsman redeemer says, If you buy the field, you have to buy the bride. And, she, and he says, no, I don't want to buy the bride then. The only way he could get the fear was to buy the bride, and he didn't want to do it. But the kinsman redeemer here paid the price, and he married Boaz, who came into the genealogy, uh, married Ruth, pardon me. Boaz married Ruth and became part of the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. Now the picture is, and the picture is our time's up, the picture is that Christ, our kinsman redeemer, and he had to take on himself humanity in order to be a kinsman. He wants to buy the bride. There was someone else who was after the church, after the field, after the world, but didn't want the bride. 
But Jesus, the man, for the joy that was set before him, sold all he had, paid the price on Calvary, and he has bought the field. The world is his. And in the field is the treasure, the church. Let me just give you chapter Revelation 4 and 5. There's another picture I wanted to give you, but it'll keep to the millennium. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you have a picture of the Lamb and the seven-sealed book in the throne. And the seven-sealed book is the book of the kinsman redeemer. And only the kinsman redeemer, when a field was lost, in fact, why don't you put down Jeremiah 32, the whole chapter, when a field was lost uh, because of being stolen or lost through not being able to pay the price or a lost inheritance, then a kinsman redeemer had to pay the price and put the evidence in a book. And then when the time came that kinsman redeemer, he had to qualify by three things. He had to be a kinsman redeemer, he had to be able to pay the price, and he had to have the evidence in a book and a seal book. And then when the kinsman redeemer come along, he said, I've paid the price, I am a kinsman redeemer, and now I want to take the book, I'm qualified to break the seals, and when he broke the seals, the inheritance became his. In chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, that's the picture you have. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Worthy are you, O Lamb of God. He's paid the price. You were redeemed as by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation. We are the peculiar treasure. And you were worthy to break the seals. And he breaks the seals thereof. And the book of Revelation is simply the evidence that he's getting back the purchased possession that we lost in Adam because Adam sold the field over to Satan. But there was a treasure. So what I'm saying here in conclusion, there's so much here. Jesus has bought the field. The earth is the Lord's. There's a few squatters on it at the moment. But when Jesus comes a second time, all squatters are going to be removed because Christ and his church are going to have a thousand years wonderful honeymoon without any squatters around because he's bought the field and the treasure in the field. Aren't you glad for that? Don't you love him tonight? Let's all stand. Just worship him just as we close in prayer here. We worship you, Lord Jesus. You are our kinsman redeemer. You paid the price, Lord. You found the treasure hid in the field. Father, we thank you. We're members of that treasure, that peculiar people, Lord. Oh, Lord, and the joy that's set before you when you hear the voice of the bride. God, the field is yours. doesn't belong to the devil. He's just a squatter. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, that you paid the price. You bought us with a price. And you not only bought the field, but you bought the, bought the church with your own precious blood. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you we're part of the church. We thank you we're part of the people of God worldwide. Thank you, Lord, that we're going to get back our lost inheritance, the earth. Thank you, Lord. We give you all the glory in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said Amen. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books and his ministry.